Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, June the 8th, 2022. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am uh, excited because it's National Best Friends Day. And, uh, you know, my best friends are all of you out there in our IT community. Uh, that's not true because I don't think any of you would come bail me out of jail. But uh, to my real best friends, uh, you know, thank you for being a part of my life and uh, bailing me out of jail when necessary. Uh, someone who I know would have my back, though, is my co-host this week, uh, Jim Suprinsky. Jim, welcome back to the show. I would definitely bail you out of jail, Tom. Well, depends on what you've done. But yes, I would come and bail you out of jail for sure. Well, the good news is, is that whatever it's going to be, the, the amount of money that you're going to have to pay is going to be significantly less than some of the uh, amounts that we're going to be talking about in this week's rundown, because we've had some acquisitions as well as a few court cases that didn't go the way that people were expecting. Uh, the first thing, though, I want to start off by talking about is, in fact, um, keeping things a little bit cheaper, because if you're looking to protect your backups and you want a solution that keeps them out of your cloud environment but doesn't break the bank, then Clumio might have what you're looking for, because they've just introduced a new version of their Secure Vault platform called Secure Vault Lite. And it reduces the costs by about 30%. Now, if you wanted to do the actual math to figure it out, it costs about three and a half cents per gigabyte per month to store it. If you want to restore it in the event of some other kind of terrible thing, it's four cents per gigabyte to restore. Now, granted, uh, considering a secure vault is kind of designed to be an immutable backup store to protect you from getting a ransomware infection, I don't think the uh, extra half a cent on the restore is going to bother you quite so much. Uh, but Jim, you know, is this a good strategy by Clumio kind of offering this lower cost tier to entice people to want to store it or maybe have a slightly uh, less rich feature set in order to kind of get people to want to step up? Yeah, you know, Tom, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, again, the idea of having air-gapped storage to me is quite fascinating. You know, I'm, <laughs> okay, fine. You know, shouldn't we just be really worried that the encryption algorithms are strong enough to prevent any type of corruption or any uh, any damage to data? But certainly makes sense. And exactly what you said, you know, uh, if you do have a ransomware uh, event, as they say, and all of a sudden you've got to get your data back from some particular point in time, uh, how much? I don't care because it's certainly going to be cheaper than paying it in Bitcoin. Well, a lot more Bitcoin probably these days, but still, even in, in that regard, sure, offering it at a lower price certainly makes sense. Transitioning from Clumio, let's stay on the cloud side of things, Tom. Uh, speaking of cloud, the market for networking in the cloud seems to be growing again. According to Dell Oral Group, data center switching grew 16% year over year in quarter one this past quarter. Uh, the impact of supply chain issues was either not apparent in the report or wasn't enough to slow down the growth. Still, analysts are expecting to see a bit of a slowdown through the rest of 2022 and maybe even a shift in focus to more R&D to get a jump on faster port speeds when supply chain eventually does catch up. So, Tom, growth is good, right? You'd think that, right? Like, this is... Uh, Delora's telling people essentially a lot of what we already knew, which is that the data center store, this data center switching market didn't slow down a whole lot. But... We have to go back and ask uh, what I is a problem I'm going to start referring to as the Peloton problem. Was this expansion 
or was this pull through of things that were already going to be purchased anyway? And people said, well, I might as well get it in before the pandemic. Uh, supply chain uh, sunspots problem hits. So think about it like this from the perspective of your your people in your data center. The Everything is slowed down. So all the R&D that had been done on 400 gig, 800 gig, terabit, Ethernet has been kind of languishing for the last couple of years. You're kind of getting to the edge of your refresh cycle. Do you go ahead and buy some switches to kind of keep things rolling forward? Maybe you need, it's not speed that's your concern. Maybe you've, you've had a little bit of growth on your own side and you need to expand the number of ports that you're offering. Do you wait and hope that the 400 gig, 800 gig that's coming out is going to be good enough? Or do you make a, a modest investment now knowing that in two years you can do like a bigger refresh to get those faster port speeds? I think a lot of companies in this particular report, because the, the the report underscores the fact that it it didn't seem like supply chain was a huge deal. You know what that says to me? People bought the stuff anyway, not expecting it to really ship until mid-year anyway. So the revenue's booked, but if Del Oro changed that to be, do you actually have the switches that you bought yet? I think that the answer would be a whole lot different. So I see this as a Peloton Type 2 problem, which this was all pull through. Like we're we're going to see a drastic drop in the amount of data center switching sales through the rest of this year because people bought the stuff they were going to buy anyway because they knew they weren't going to get it till October at any rate. So I think that that's ultimately going to be something that, um, I don't know, is not a positive in the long run. Jim, kind of going back to some of the storage uh, stuff, uh, NetApp, we're familiar with them. We talked to them quite a bit, and we also talk about them here on the rundown. Uh, they're trying to be a single source for all the things that your storage solution might need to offer you because uh, some of their latest announcements, when you take them together, uh, include things like ransomware protection, hybrid cloud offerings, unified management, uh, collaboration with VMware to help you kind of transition from on-prem to the cloud. Now, I guess the ultimate goal that NetApp's trying to do here is they're trying to keep people on NetApp storage, whether they're invested in traditional on-premises enterprise data center workloads, or they're trying to move into the public cloud and they need something that has the flexibility to meet both of those goals, as we've seen kind of the way that NetApp has grown the cloud side of the offerings. But the question that I have for you is, is that as more companies are starting to move towards having everything that they need at their fingertips that's being offered by Amazon or Microsoft in their particular cloud environments, what role can NetApp really play to kind of keep people using their traditional storage architectures? Yeah, and we should also note, by the way, that Google Cloud Platform's included in the uh, strategy they're talking about as well, right? So the big three, as they like to say. Um, yeah, it seems to make sense to me that they're going to keep moving forward with this. I like the idea of having that all integrated into one package, if you will, uh, that you can manage, uh, especially, again, with the ransomware protection. I mean, you know, that seems to be cutting across all clouds right now where everybody's worried about security. It seems that it's going to speak very well to uh, the C-level executives. Uh, when I talk to folks like that and my colleagues that are talking to them, the biggest thing they're worried about is, where is my data? Who's got access to it? Is it secure? So having a centralized way to look at that and understand how important that is, I think is going to play very well. Um, and NetApp, uh, you know, continuing uh, to collaborate with VMware, wherever VMware eventually ends up, you know, uh, 
as we've spoken about in in past uh, conferences and 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 VMware wherever they're going to end up wherever that's going to be as we talked about in prior episodes you me other people right uh, it, it makes sense because VMware doesn't certainly seem like it's going to go away. So yeah, I think this is a, a really good play on their part, a smart play. They're in the right place to execute it. Makes pretty good sense to me. So Tom, RSA is this week. That means there's going to be some exciting security news. It looks like IBM is going to be enhancing their detection and response offerings with a pickup of Randori. The offensive security platform allows teams to mirror what attackers are doing in the real world to attempt to get in through holes and poke into their systems and any other areas of interest. Uh, so Renduri was founded in 2018. They've raised about $30 million. IBM is going to integrate the solution into their hybrid cloud strategy. So, Tom, thoughts? It seems, again, like these types of companies keep popping up. Yeah, they do. And I think that what you're starting to see is kind of, um, to use a, an agricultural term, you're, you're reaping the fields at this point. There were a lot of these offensive security companies that got founded about five years ago. They had this idea that they were going to go out and they were going to build these platforms that were effectively going to do um, the same kind of thing that you saw in the seminal 1990s work sneakers. Um, and I, I love to reference it because it's one of my favorite movies. But essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to show you that a, a red team as a service allows you to go in and try to attack the the uh, systems that you've built. And by having an outside party do it, like, you know, you can obviously kind of define the rules of engagement, but you don't have to worry about kind of that familiarity breeding contempt kind of problem that a lot of red teams might have. And that's a very valuable thing to a company that needs to build that service um, quickly. And, and I, I refer back to something I wrote many, many years ago, um, the, uh, the, the, the bees of innovation. Um, you can build it, you can buy it, or you can complain about it and use the B word that makes the most sense there that I can't repeat on YouTube. But um, this is definitely the buy it option. Um, for IBM, $30 million is a drop in the hat. Um, and honestly, that's what they raised. That's not what they got bought for. You know, let's be fair. That uh, this is one of those uh, terms of the deals have not been disclosed because they're not financially relevant to IBM's bottom line. So that means they got bought for a low double-digit million-dollar um, uh, amount, and this is actually a good get for them. Um, I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to integrate this into their cloud offering because this is not something you typically see being offered. It's like, oh, hey, we have ransomware protection. We have all these VPCs. And those four guys over there are going to try to hack your stuff if you really want. Um, but I think that maybe there is a market for this. I'm really just curious to kind of see where IBM is going to take it. Um, because let's be fair. Uh, you mentioned in the in the previous story, you know, uh, GCP being the, uh, the, big, the third of the big three. And then you have this really long list of cloud providers. Then you have IBM. Uh, they're still ahead of Oracle Cloud, I guess. Love you, Larry. Uh, but, you know, they're still very bespoke and custom and kind of off in the corner. And I don't necessarily know that they can build the services that they need to kind of spin that up to be kind of like a like a like an alternative third or fourth option for people. So here's hoping that, that they can make some, some hay out of it. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, congratulations to the folks at Randori for your, uh, your exit. Uh, I hope you like the color blue. All right, um, Jim, so there was an interesting bit of news that actually came out today. Um, Oracle, a company you're pretty familiar with, uh, closed the deal to buy Cerner for 
uh, let me do the math here. $26 billion. <laughs> That's a lot. Jim, why is this such an important deal? Because the last time that I looked, uh, Oracle was a database giant and cloud upstart. And uh, Cerner does none of those things. In fact, they're a medical records company. So what's the attraction here? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, first of all, I've always suspected that Larry Ellison, love you, Larry, uh, <laughs> has had an interest in uh, personal long life. So that could be part of it. Maybe he's, you know, something in, in that regard. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, he does own his own island, right? Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that uh, Cerner, and I usually hear Cerner in the same breath as Epic, right? The big healthcare EMR companies, uh, Epic's based right here, just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, amazing campus as well. Uh, but it sort of makes sense what Oracle is starting to do. And I'm not sure if this is just a strategy to counteract the fact that they're not even maybe in the big five of, if you will, of the cloud providers, right, is focusing not horizontally, but vertically. So, uh, you know, if you walk into a hotel today, like it or not, most likely, if it's a Hyatt or a Marriott, you're probably going to see Oracle terminals. They're very heavily into the hospitality suite, if you will, of that arena. In a way, this makes sense because, let's be honest, uh, we're still in that period where medical record collection and possibly with enough anonymization, data from medical records is going to be really crucial to solve other types of healthcare issues going forward in the future. So it's kind of like a, a strange purchase from one perspective, but it really makes sense if you're building uh, vertical industry penetration. So I think that's what's really driving it more than anything else. So if they could tackle, say, hospitality, uh, airline, uh, Oracle adds medical records to its vertical uh, portfolio, that speaks to other industries as well uh, that, hey, maybe we could make some hay here if we uh, started using their solutions because they understand our business, right? So I think that's what's really driving it. And I think you may be right there, Jim, that this is not necessarily an attempt to own a company, but to own a vertical is, you know, when uh, Cerner runs on Oracle now, and Cerner is the second or the largest, depending on how you look at it, medical records company. Um, that's like, uh, that's like Facebook buying Instagram. They weren't buying a platform, they were buying a user count. And so that's kind of, I, I think that you're, you're on to something there. And of course, obviously, we'll, we'll be talking more about that as, as the, the deal kind of finalizes and we see what Oracle's going to do with it. Uh, you know what? Maybe Larry's going to buy another island and just store all the medical records over there. That'd be great. <laughs> all right. So we had one story we want to take a little bit closer look at because I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, the fact that we still kind of deal with situations where technology companies run afoul of the law. And uh, we're going to talk about IBM again. Uh, because they just uh, finally lost a court case this week and they owe BMC $1.6 billion, which is less than it cost to buy Cerner, but more than it cost to buy a cup of coffee. Now, you may ask yourself, what did IBM do to deserve this? Well, it turns out 
IBM may have stolen one of BMC's biggest customers, this little phone company you might have heard of called AT&T. Yeah, so essentially the breakdown is, is that IBM had been providing service on behalf of BMC working on those mainframe computers. You remember those, the ones that are the size of a refrigerator. Um, this had been going on for a number of years, and IBM and BMC kind of had this very um, specifically worded agreement that IBM was not going to steal any of BMC's customers and just provide the service for the AS400s and all their other mainframe servers directly. Makes sense, right? Flash forward to 2015, BMC alleges that IBM did some very not nice things and stole AT&T. Now, in court, IBM argued that this was all AT&T's decision and they had absolutely nothing to do with it and there's no way they would have influenced it at all. Mm -mm, no way. Totally not my fault. The judge didn't see it that way. And this was a non-jury trial, so this was a judge's ruling. He said, oh, yes, you did. You cannot lie to me. And he awarded them, it was something like $750 million in damages plus interest plus 2% because I guess he was just mad at IBM. Uh, now, of course, guess what? IBM's going to appeal it because they say that the verdict has no founding in law and and what have you. Um, so I guess this comes down to kind of the, the situation that I want to discuss with you, Jim. Obviously, IBM is the biggest manufacturer of mainframes out there still. They are the last buggy whip manufacturer, if you want to use that terminology. They're the only ones that can work on this stuff. So obviously, the goal for IBM is to get as many of these customers as possible directly. But then you have companies like BMC who've been offering this kind of service for years. How does IBM transition those customers away from BMC without looking like they're sticking their fingers in the pot and kind of uncomfortably encouraging them to dump the middleman? Yeah. Okay. So a few thoughts right off the bat. Uh, number one, uh, mainframes. Yep. I actually did work on them back in the day. Uh, they still do exist. Number two. Uh, yeah, you're right. IBM definitely is still, you know, the mother of all mainframes. Interestingly, number three, I actually did work for a predecessor of AT&T for about two years uh, before finally the contract ran out. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> um Interesting company, but let's be honest, they are not exactly, shall we say, the behemoths of new thinking, okay? Um, you know, IBM's obviously done things with uh, machine learning and AI, uh, you know, with Big Blue and other things, but these are not companies essentially known for large amounts of cutting-edge innovation. So uh, the fact that anybody's fighting over mainframe contracts seems like a, a postscript to a footnote. <laughs> That's the thing that really amazed me. Uh, there's poaching going on. Um, yeah, that to me really surprised me here. I mean, I can understand poaching, you know, valuable resources, data scientists, uh, your R&D uh, information, but mainframe contracts? Seriously? Apparently it is a thing. So it, it, that was the thing that really grabbed me. Um, one other aspect of this is uh, that IBM, of course, is appealing. Um, and I just flash back to Aaron Eckhart in Thank You for Smoking when his son asks him, what's the uh, best thing about the American system of government? And Eckhart just answers, blurts out, 
its endless appeal system. You know, I'm assured that they're not going to get all 1.6 billion uh, in settlement. Maybe not. They might even get more. Who knows? But it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's just a really odd case, don't you think? It's a very odd case, but I think that the important thing to think about, and you touched on it a little bit, Jim, is in in today's society where we hear buzzwords like AI and ML and growth and and and, and all this other stuff, and we step back into you know, because let's be fair, if there's one if there's one thing that moves slower than the mainframe uh, uh, vertical, it's it's the legal system. Um, and IBM knows this because uh, they fought this little court case with uh, the Santa Cruz uh, operation over the copyrights to Linux for, well, I was in high school when the lawsuit started and it just got closed about two years ago. Um, so that's how long it took for all of that appeals process to, to exhaust themselves. And IBM was actually on the right side of that one. But the, here's the thing. Yes, there's going to be poaching involved here. And there's a lot of like really weird stuff going on because like I said, one, there aren't that many companies out there that are going to like, you know, wake up one day and go, you know what I want to do? I want to build a mainframe service organization. I want to offer mainframe contracts. No, they're not. IBM is the only one who does this. And when you look at companies like Dell, you look at companies like Cisco, you look at companies like Oracle. Do you really think they want other people working on their stuff? Unless they're like trained and paying a, a, a retainer fee of some kind. They want vassals to go out and do this. And you're right. It is not a growth industry. The number of AS400s today won't materially change over the next five years. They're not going to get bigger, but they're not going to get smaller because most of the workloads that are still running on those things are stuck there. When we talk about the fact that there are some workloads that are just never going to migrate to the cloud, this is one of the things that we're talking about. These things are stuck where they're at. I know this because I used to do a, a reseller service for a, an organization that had an AS400 running their student information system. That thing was archaic in every sense of the word. And there was one guy left in the organization whose job it was to work on that system. And that guy was going to have a job as long as he wanted it because no one else wanted to learn how to work on that thing. So IBM is in a very tough situation because if there's no growth in the industry, that means that the profits are pretty much static. They're not going to change. But everybody who wants to come in and keep providing that service is going to nibble away at the available pie. IBM can't grow it, so they have to take a bigger slice for themselves. And that's where this comes into play. Now, here's the other side of this. Um, uh, maybe I've watched too many movies. Uh, maybe I'm just a cynic at heart. But if the wolf is at your door telling you that there's absolutely no way that he's going to eat any of the little pigs because he doesn't like pigs, he's lying to you. Do not believe for an instant that the company that makes bacon isn't going to eat the pigs because they say so. And remember that if you go back and look at the story that we linked from Bloomberg, this all happened right when that agreement was renegotiated. IBM was effectively sitting there with their hands you know, in their pockets going, man, it would be terrible if anything were to ever happen and we couldn't provide service to BMC for any reason related to contracts. But boy, if only there was a way that we could provide service directly to you. But that would be against the rules. And we can't talk about that very much. And like literally their eyes just sitting here winking the whole time because they're telling AT&T when the contract negotiations up, open it up and we might just make a bid on it. 
And that's exactly what happened. So let's be fair. Was the process probably legally defensible? Absolutely. AT&T is not going to take a risk on this. But BMC is not arguing that AT&T didn't do the thing the way that AT&T needed to do it. They're saying that IBM illegally enticed them according to that agreement. So don't sign an agreement saying that you're not going to go poach people over here or poach people over there because they will do that and they will find a loophole to do it. And let's be fair, companies like IBM, AT&T, BMC, Dell, Cisco, they have really good lawyers that get paid really well to find loopholes or to uh, to cut your fingers off when you reach your hand through one. So don't get yourself into these kinds of situations. Now, granted, if you're in a small enterprise type environment, you're not going to be in a situation where a $1.6 billion fine could even be levied. $1.6 million would probably be a big fine for a small cap kind of provider. But you need to understand that these are the kinds of arrangements and agreements that happen. And like you said, IBM's going to appeal this thing into an eternity. Um, that just means the interest costs on the, on the damages award is going to keep going up. Um, I hope that they don't have to sell off the AS400 organization in order to be able to afford the fine. Although maybe, maybe BMC will buy it from them. Yeah. And while they're thinking about that too, was that the AS400 with the eight and a half inch floppy disks that we were talking about? <laughs> I think that that one's been put out to pasture. But if anybody has a picture of an eight and a half inch floppy disk that they'd like to tweet at Gestalt IT and tag it with the rundown, I'd love to see that because I saw a TikTok video the other day of a guy holding a three and a half inch floppy and goes, why do they call them floppy disks? They're hard. And a guy pulls out a five and a quarter. And I'm like, they made bigger ones than that. So I would love to see that. Um, in fact, I'll tell you something. If you would love to bring me that picture, if you're going to be at any of the events we have coming up, I'll even take a picture with the disc because we have a couple of things coming up that you're definitely going to want to take a, a look at. The first one is actually happening next week, and I'm super excited about it because it's Cisco Live. It's it's my favorite event. Uh, I've been at Cisco Live every year since 2006. And yes, I'm going to count the pandemic years as me attending. I was there. Um, that's June 14th and 15th for the Tech Field Day parts that we're doing. You can tune in, check out techfieldday.com for a list of who's presenting. Uh, we've got Cisco. We've also got some other exciting companies you're going to want to check out. The next week, I'm putting Steven back to work because he's out at uh, Pure Accelerate this week, but he's going to be doing Cloud Field Day 14. That's June 22nd and 24th through the 24th in Silicon Valley. He's got a great lineup of people there as well. Check that out on the website at techfieldday.com. And Jim, I know you've probably got a lot of stuff that you're working on. Where can people go to check out some of the stuff that you're doing? Uh, well, I'm actually going to be that same week as Cloud Field Day. I'm going to be at K-Scope 22 in Dallas, Fort Worth area. Uh, I'm going to be presenting three different times on all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, but if you want to follow me, probably the best way is on Twitter at Jim the Y guy and or check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, I've got an interesting couple of weeks coming up too. I'm excited to get back out and actually be once again in person with people. Absolutely. And we want to thank everyone for tuning in today. We, we sincerely appreciate your viewership. And remember, if you have any cool stories that you'd like us to check out, um, anybody getting poached, uh, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT. Use the hashtag rundown. Uh, we'll see that. We'll include it in the story lineup. And uh, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe to our podcast. If you're a fan of listening to this, maybe when the rain's falling like it is outside right now, um, gestaltit.com slash podcast, or just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcatching application. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time with more great stories. Uh, actually, I won't be 
back, but I'm sure Stephen will have an amazing co-host that will uh, try to fill in and tell as many bad jokes as possible. But I will be back the week after that, so I look forward to seeing you all very soon. Thank you.